My dear Wormwood, so, your man is in love, and in the worst kind he could possibly have fallen into, and with a girl who does not even appear in the report you sent me. You may be interested to learn that the little misunderstanding with the secret police which you tried to raise about some unguarded expressions in one of my letters has been tidied over. If you were reckoning on that to secure my good offices, you will find yourself mistaken. You shall pay for that as well as for your other blunders. Meanwhile, I enclose a little booklet just issued on the new House of Corrections for Incompetent Tempters. It is profusely illustrated, and you will not find a dull page in it. I have looked up this girl's dossier, and am horrified at what I find. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian. A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery-eyed, insignificant virgin of bread-and-butter miss. The little brute, she makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. We'd have had her in the arena in the old days. That's what her sort is good for. Not that she'd do any good there either. A two-faced little cheat, I know the sort, who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood and then dies with a smile. A cheat every way. Looks as if butter would melt in her mouth and yet has a satirical wit. The sort of creature who, who would find me funny filthy, insipid little prude, and yet ready to fall into this booby's arms like any other breeding animal. Why doesn't the enemy blast her for it if he's so moonstruck by virginity, instead of looking on there grinning? He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, in his sea, there is pleasure, and more pleasure, he makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it is of any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Not that that excuses you. I'll settle with you presently. You have always hated me and been insolent when you dared. Then, of course, he gets to know this woman's family and whole circle. Could you not see the very house she lived in was one he ought never to have entered? The whole place reeks of the deadly odour. The very gardener, though he has been there only five years, is beginning to acquire it. Even guests, after a weekend visit, come away with the smell of it on them. The dog and the cat are tainted with it, a house full of the impenetrable mystery. We are certain, it is a matter of first principles, that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others, but we can't find out how. They guard, as jealously as the enemy himself, the secret of what really lies behind the pretense of disinterested love. The whole house and garden are one vast obscenity. It bears a sickening resemblance to the description of one human writer when he said of heaven, The regions where there is only life, and therefore all that is not music, is silence. Music and silence. How I detest them both! 
How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, though longer ago than humans reckoning in light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise, noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile, noise which alone defends us from silly qualms and despairing scruples and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides, and in that direction, regarding the earth, the melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end, but I admit we are not yet loud enough, or anything like it. Research is in progress. Meanwhile, you, you, d disgusting little... At this point, the manuscript breaks off, and is resumed in a different hand. In the heat of composition, I find that I have inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. I am accordingly dictating the rest to my secretary. Now that the transformation is complete, I recognize it as a periodical phenomenon. Some rumor of it has reached the humans, and a distorted account of it appears in the poet Milton, with the ridiculous addition that such changes of shape are a punishment imposed on us by the enemy. A more modern writer, someone with the name like Pishaw, has, however, grasped the truth. Transformation proceeds from within and is a glorious manifestation of that life force which our father would worship if he worshipped anything but himself. In my present form, I feel even more anxious to see you, to unite you to myself in an indissoluble embrace. Signed, Toadpipe, for his abysmal sublimity under secretary, Screwtape, E, B, S, etc. Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. Most of you will recognize the opening Dramatization is an excerpt from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. In the three pages of this one small chapter, Lewis manages to address vast theological and political issues which could each occupy their own single volume. The origin and nature of evil and temptation, the sanctity of marriage and the satanic hatred for marital love and the family it produces, the God-ordained union of the spiritual and the material world, and the devilish resentment of that union, uh, and the, the demonic hatred of the earthly creation, the holiness and creative power of pleasure versus the devil's impotent inability to create any pleasures but only to twist the good pleasures into evil, the spiritual energy behind music and silence versus the disintegrating power of noise. The sovereignty and, and wisdom of God over satanic insanity and God's sovereign rulership over it, though he allows it to function for his own eternal purposes. We could take hours to try to scale any one of these mountains, which Lewis manages to address all in one entertaining and at times hilarious setting. But for our purposes here, I want to focus on just one aspect of Lewis's spiritual genius as it relates to the dark power 
behind political forces. Please focus with me on the fact that Lewis imagines hell not as some vast anti-heaven, but more as a huddle of self-seeking, backbiting bureaucrats whose entire system of interaction is based on the perverse hunger to devour one another and whose loyalty to the cause is only maintained by fear, <clears throat> intimidation, and revenge. And before our time here is over, I hope to show that this is not a mere literary ploy of Lewis, but a prophetic description of the way the invisible forces of hell manifest their character and their cruelty through the visible human, political, and economic structures of the earth. Paul refers to these evil bedfellows, these human organizations that can become the physical structures that house demonic forces as principalities and powers. Every generation has faced their version of these. They are both left and right. They are both uh, capitalist and socialist uh, and communist. <clears throat> so before we get into this and start labeling this is evil and that's good, be aware that this all runs through the heart of man uh, who, who builds the structures. Uh, and so there are good things that can come through certain structures, of course. Government, Romans 11 says, is raised up by God for the protection from evil and order to be maintained. <clears throat> the sword is wielded by that government, according to Romans 13, to be the instrument of God's justice in the earth. That means that there is structure that God intends good to come through. But <laughs> you don't need me to tell you that uh, there are no pure and perfect and good governments. So they cannot be labeled because they change from culture to culture. But scripture describes a time to come at the end of human history when these structures, political, economic, and religious, will align and unite into a worldwide covenant of hell that will seek to openly resist and eventually try to destroy the kingdom of God in the earth. Now, since we are now seeing the formation of these demonic human connections and these uh, coalitions more clearly, I guess, now than ever in history, and yet we find many around us being seduced by them anyway, we need the insight God entrusted to C.S. Lewis. Now, I think more than ever. It was this ability to make eternal issues not only understandable but entertaining that brought C.S. Lewis onto the broadcast stage of history during the darkest days of World War II. It's difficult for us with our omnipresent musical soundtrack constantly pouring from every corner of life to understand the way things were for the British people at the beginning of World War II where music and entertainment was concerned. The BBC was the only source of information or entertainment or music. So easily obtained for us now, uh, it's so hard for us to comprehend what it was like for them then, uh, with most people not having access to uh, recordings or, and even, even when they turn on the radio, they're not quite sure what they're going to hear. 
So there was a lot of frustration with boring, staid, stodgy broadcasting. Sunday morning broadcasts consisted of organ music and church services. And even though the British people knew better, out of sheer boredom and the very human need for amusement and diversion, especially in time of war, they began to turn into or, or tune into the Hamburg, Germany station in order to hear a British trader named William Joyce, who came to be known as Lord Haw Haw. A European version of Tokyo Rose, this comedian became a tool in the hands of the German disinformation machine to begin wearing away the heart and soul of the British people. As they listened to him, he fed them bits and pieces of discouraging news, and there was enough truth mixed with the false to begin a cancer growing in the souls of the British people. The British Broadcasting Company had been founded with strong Christian roots. The words at the entrance of the headquarters read, quote, This temple of the arts and muses is dedicated to Almighty God by the first governors of broadcasting in the year 1931. Sir John Reith, Director General. It is their prayer that good seed sown may bring forth good harvest and that the people inclining their ear to whatever things are beautiful and honest and of good report may tread the path of wisdom and uprightness. End quote. Yet for the Christians within the BBC, the descent of the occult Nazi dragon upon them seemed to challenge the core of Christian faith. And no voice seemed to be up to the demand to present the Word of God in a way that could affirm the ancient truths of the Bible in a relevant and convincing way. The Archbishop of Canterbury was given his proper platform to speak to the nation over the BBC airways, but one BBC official described Archbishop Lang's message as, quote, completely vapid and irrelevant. It began to be feared that the higher one went into the Christian leadership of the country to find a voice worth hearing, the worse the results would be for the moral and morale and strengthening of the country. Britain was hardly what anyone would call a committed Christian nation. You know, we have a tendency to think everybody who lived in any other time other than our own were all Christians. But historian Justin Phillips says, quote, God was conspicuous by his absence from many people's lives. In Britain, two-thirds of BBC listeners were living without any reference to God. God was simply not a factor. Religious programs were a given part of the broadcasting landscape, but one of little everyday relevance. Understanding of the Bible and knowledge of the gospel stories was minimal. Those responsible for religious broadcasting understood that everywhere there was a great ignorance of the Christian faith. For instance, in one survey of British soldiers, only 23% knew the meaning of Easter. One bright-minded young man thought that the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written by Karl Marx. Phillips points out that the King James Version, though beautiful in its language, was too archaic and poorly explained to the average person for them to respond to it. Men and women facing the demands of impending war might draw some inspiration from a well-delivered text in Elizabethan English, but 
They were not digesting the core meaning behind the beautiful words. They needed clarity. The BBC saw that their role in the war as being not only the guardian of information and the protection from boredom, but to fulfill their original charter to, quote, sow the good seed and bring forth good harvest. But they were at a loss to know who to turn to and who could bridge the huge gap that dull, dry, religious, rote traditionalism had forged between the gospel and the population. Now, what they did not know at the time, but what would come to be known soon, was that the man or woman on the street, the one who was bored with church and hated religious broadcasting and mistrusted and even resented religion in general, still had a never-ending yet hidden yearning to hear anything real. James Welch, an early founder of British Broadcasting, uh, reported that there was, quote, an almost unanimous consensus of opinion among the non-church populace that the man Jesus lay, uh, in the man Jesus lay the key to many of the riddles of life, as he put it. Now, during the turbulence of 1939 and 40, as Norway and Denmark followed swiftly in the wake of Poland and Czechoslovakia, as the mass evacuation of Dunkirk almost took the soul out of the nation, and as Paris stood in tears as Hitler rode triumphantly through their streets, it was an, as easy for the average British citizen to imagine the worst as it is difficult for us to imagine it. Miles away from the intensity of daily preparation for invasion, which was taking place every day in London, an Oxford professor of medieval English literature was walking away from the altar where he had just received communion when an idea sprang up in his mind, and the idea was to write a story about an older demon giving instructions to a younger one concerning how to guide souls away from heaven and into hell. Lewis had just completed the book, The Problem of Pain, which offered true and compelling answers for why a good God would allow suffering. What might have been passed off before as a, another academic exploration of subjects in which no one was really interested soon became a top seller. Everyone wanted to understand something of the problem of pain. It had overnight become a personal guide for them. Now, we all understand that God raises up certain people who are equipped for demanding times. George Washington seemed to have been supernaturally protected on the battlefields that proceeded, preceded his leadership in the birth of this country. Mordecai tells Esther that she must consider whether maybe she was ordained by divine providence, raising her up to the throne of Persia for, quote, such a time as this. Long before the storm clouds of World War II were visible to the average person, a young visitor to the United States named Winston Churchill stepped off of a New York City curbside and was hit by a car. But his survival of that ordeal caused him to unapologetically state that he could not die until he had led Great Britain and all of the free world through a coming dark time, one which he had intuited since his youth. Though it may not seem quite as dramatic or as historic, it is significant that the second most listened to voice in all of Great Britain, behind Churchill's, 
during that predicted dark time would be C.S. Lewis. His radio addresses reached highbrows and lowbrows, military and civilians, government officials and street vendors. Many who before would have simply tuned him out were now intensely tuned in. The sword of Damocles that was then hanging over the heads of all of Europe and specifically over the United Kingdom awakened the average person to become seriously attuned to those issues which the deathly boredom of traditionalism had rendered too mysterious or too otherworldly or quite often, sadly, just too plain dull to care about. But forming in the mind and heart of a man who lived in the seemingly irrelevant halls of obscure academia were ideas and then stories, parables, and examples which could begin to satisfy the non-religious and even anti-religious minds and imaginations of the British citizens who, though resistant to organized religion, somehow intuited that the man Jesus had the keys to the many riddles of life, as we quoted a while ago. Now that this life was hanging in the balance, with the scale swiftly leaning toward death, from invasion and conquest. Ears and hearts were ready for a voice that could give them answers in, in a down-to-earth and even, God forbid, entertaining way. By the choice of divine providence, their watchman on the wall, their guide back to reality, seemed to be no one special, not a church authority or a noted theologian by profession, but a mere university professor of English literature but as is true with everyone, no one knows what has gone into the formation of a human soul. The beautifully filmed but horribly inaccurate 1994 version of the stage play Shadowlands, directed by Richard Attenborough, seeks to damn Lewis with faint praise. The earlier BBC TV version starring Joss Ocklin was a much better version, by the way. Lewis is portrayed as a mere intellectual who writes far beyond his realm of expertise when it comes to pain, fear, and loss. In the film version, Lewis makes statements about life that he has no experience and therefore no authority to address. And only after his terrible loss and the suffering induced by the death of his beloved wife, Joy, does he finally come to the conclusion that he doesn't really know much about all these things, and the best he can do now with uh, the loss of joy is uh, to just hope that there is maybe reason to hope. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically how, what it comes down to. Now, this makes for satisfying Hollywood fare, but it would have done little or nothing to help the British audience who became so open and interested in what Lewis had to say in the face of the war. Besides that, this version presented by Shadowlands is simply not true historically. Lewis had known suffering and loss. The death of his mother when he was ten, the dark years of being abandoned by his well-meaning but misguided father, who sometimes left him in the hands of insanely cruel schoolmasters. He had faced war at its worst in the fields of World War II one France. 
it's no exaggeration to point out that the more intelligent a man is, the more capacity for a certain kind of inner suffering, which may be invisible to onlookers, but if measured inside, would be terrifying to contemplate. For instance, Lewis wrote to his best friend, Arthur Greaves, of a terrifying encounter he had had with a friend who seemed to be dying, and as he was dying, was screaming of horrors that he was about to enter. Lewis says to Arthur, We must be very careful. We all hold our sanity only by a mere thread. He cannot write what he writes the way he writes without a close-up and personal awareness of pain and of life and of death. So it was more than Lewis's deep, resonant voice, which, by the way, became the inspiration of Tolkien's character Treebeard in Lord of the Rings. It was more than that voice that spelled out for the British people the basic principles of what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. It was far more than mere academic theory. These lectures became a light in the midst of the worst darkness of modern times so far and are so powerful in their effect that they were later transcribed into a book form that we now know as mere Christianity. Through these talks and later through the pages of the book, millions would come to know what the people of Britain heard on those radio broadcasts. He was powerfully effective because he was clear and yet reverent. He was relevant, yet rooted in ancient mystery. He was theologically sound, yet had the ability to present high truth in down-to-earth ways, just like his Lord did when he was on the earth. Lewis managed to bring the truth of the Incarnation, redemption, and the cross and the resurrection, the conquest of death in Jesus Christ, out of the shadows of traditionalism and into the daily struggles of the blitzed London streets, while at the same time doing nothing to dishonor or diminish good traditions which in themselves were still worthy of honor. He did something else which was unprecedented. He made eternal truth and biblical teaching entertaining, though this would find a much greater demonstration with the publication of the Screwtape Letters. His radio addresses during the war were so personable and inviting in their mix of transcendence with normal everyday living that the cabbie or the street vendor or the shopkeeper or the policeman did not have to make any mental adjustments from their everyday world and enter some strange realm of religious piety in order to be able to say to themselves after hearing him, Yeah, I understand. That makes sense to me. You could not have purposefully planned a more difficult radio debut for an unknown than what happened uh, in Lewis's first broadcast. It, it took place in the early evening, uh, and it was placed right behind the broadcast of the Norwegian news. Of course, broadcast in Norwegian. It wasn't news about Norway. It was news to Norway about the war. Anyway, the point is, this is about the time when if radios across Britain are going to be turned off, it'll be turned off at this moment. In spite of this inauspicious and difficult beginning, it was a very clear success. One Royal Air Force officer 
John Lawler, was in the officer's mess when someone ordered a drink. Lewis's voice came over the radio speakers, just as uh, the barman was about to hand over a drink to a customer. Lawler says, quote, Suddenly, everyone just froze listening to the extraordinary voice that was coming across the radio speakers. Finally, they ended up at the end of the broadcast with the barman still holding the drink in the air and the customer oblivious to the fact that he hadn't gotten his drink yet. They were so riveted to what they were hearing. Well, what had them so riveted? What was Lewis saying that was so engrossing? Did he open with a King James English text? Did he describe the transcendent mysteries or philosophical and theological uh, difficulties? Did he hand down moral edicts? Did he offer grave prophetic warnings of impending disaster? No. <laughs> this is what he started with. Everyone has heard people quarreling. That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He hasn't done you any harm. How'd you like it if someone treated you that way? Come on, you promised. The point Lewis makes is that each of us appeals to our own understanding of a certain standard of behavior, and we hold others to that standard. This universal understanding of right and wrong uh, is the foundation of all quarrels. The point of any quarrel is to prove someone wrong and something else right. He then said that the entire point of the current war is nonsense unless the enemy is wrong and unless right is a real thing which the Germans at bottom know but are refusing to practice. And one of the keys to Lewis's appeal was his willingness to identify wholly with the listener and to reject any tendency to be preachy or condescending or to pontificate. He includes himself in the illustrations of human failure to live up to the moral law. In this way, Lewis is capturing the heart of his listeners right away. He's actually reenacting the Incarnation. Obviously, our Lord does not participate in our failure, but he does come down and participate in our humanness. The Word is made flesh not in a royal palace, but in a manger. The Word is coming down in, in this moment of Lewis's communication. He's coming uh, into a bar. A pub. The truth is being tabernacled in the, the everyday life of the British people, the den or the kitchen, the barracks or the office. And immediately, with no human promptings, and certainly with no attempt to make Lewis a, quote, coming attraction by the use of advertising or broadcast gimmicks, and in fact, just the opposite, Lewis begins capturing an audience that has mostly turned a deaf ear to sermons uh, and anything related to that for decades. He hooked them in even more deeply when he invites those who do not need to hear what he's going to say to turn, turn off the radio. This is not a good way to start a, a, a new radio show in the eyes of the world. He says, quote, Now if there are any exceptions to this moral law among you, I apologize to any of you. You'd better switch off the radio or turn to another station because nothing I'm going to say concerns you. <laughs>
Thus began a broadcast relationship between C.S. Lewis, the BBC, and the British public that would last through the turbulent war years and beyond. How was it possible to carry the demands of weekly broadcasting on top of an already heavy university workload, which was so often interrupted by the constant drain of a less-than-ideal domestic situation? The war years left Lewis precious little time for himself. Yet, these years would yield some of the most valuable writing for the general public of his entire career. Lewis only wrote the books best known to us today after his normal work hours were complete. He wrote at night when the demands of the day were behind him. He wrote because it was in him to do it. The combination of his extraordinarily clear understanding of the gospel coupled with his very, very human awareness of the fears and longings that we all share urged him forward in his writing, especially during the war years. The inner hungers we all share for life and love to endure beyond the present shadows of a war-torn world enabled him to point with his pen uh, to some of the most hauntingly beautiful realities, the meaning of life and death and life after death that have ever been penned in all of literature. Again, it seems difficult for those of us who live in this post-war era of continued prosperity and even increasingly technological ascendancy to, to grasp even some of the atmosphere of a nation at war with the dragon of hell breathing down their throats. But now we may be coming to the end of that prosperous age of false peace. We may be standing now on the very threshold of our own confrontation with the dragon, maybe the final confrontation in all of history. If we are, then the words Lewis wrote and spoke, especially during the early spring and summer of 1941, through the radio broadcasts, in the pages of The Problem of Pain, the sermons like Transposition and The Weight of Glory, will soon mean as much to us in our impending battles as they meant to millions of our British family then. When writing the preface of a later release of these early messages to a post-war audience, Lewis says of these messages in the dark days in which they were penned, quote, the period from which these pieces date was for all of us an exceptional one. And though I do not think I have altered any belief that they embody, I could not now recapture the tone and temper in which they were written. And of course, he could not have because he was not living under the same duress of World War II. But he goes on to say, nor would those who wanted to have a permanent copy of these messages want me to offer them such a patchwork of altered writing. It has therefore seemed better to let them go only with a few verbal corrections, he says. Well, of course he's right. There would be no need to be altering or any of the wording or any of the passages to suit a more modern audience. The boredom and unbelief of the original audience that had lost confidence in church is just as bored and just as jaded in unbelief now. The human hope for life and love to somehow survive that was in them then, under the shadow of the Nazis, is still in every heart now. The need for an incarnation of the Word 
to the common person on the street that was so lacking then is strangely lacking now, even though we have an abundance of Christian stuff out there. It's not reaching the heart on a large scale. The truths Lewis's life and message held then are the truths we need now. The enemy faced then is the enemy we face now, even though it has different symbols and different vernacular and different poses. It's the same spirit of Antichrist. The need for inner resolve to stand in the face of political insanity and economic hardship and potential destruction of everything we care about that was needed then is the same that we need now. The childlike simplicity of trust in Christ, which Lewis communicated so beautifully then, we need to, to digest and communicate now. I began this message planning to offer a few of the much-needed political and prophetic insights that Lewis taught us in books like The Abolition of Man, The Pilgrim's Regress, and woven throughout dozens of other of his writings, concepts that would provide to the less politically oriented reader or student a handle by which to grasp the current and mounting trends towards world socialism and the spirit of Antichrist, which in empowers those philosophies. For those still interested in that aspect of Lewis's legacy, that help is still available. If you'll contact me, I can make it available. But now that I'm here discussing Lewis's great wartime messages, I find it very hard to move on to any other topic. Unless a soul has so embraced the spirit of darkness that it has lost all humanity and therefore all godliness, every man and woman, boy and girl in the world will respond to the longing for love, the need for truth, and the hope for life. And though discussion and debate has its place, it still seems that while the prosaic argument is pounding away at the citadels of the mind, the quieter, gentler messengers of poetry, words of the heart, seem to slip so often past the armed guards up on the wall, and they enter into the heart unseen and unresisted until it's too late, and love and truth wins the battle that argument and stalemate fails to win. Now, the enemy of our souls has known that for a long time, while the church, in the name of of a false sense of godliness gave up the arts as worldly. We spend all of our time, quote, preaching the gospel, end quote, to those who come to church, quote, end quote. We weren't told to preach the gospel to those who come to our church buildings. Principalities and powers that we spoke of earlier took their message out to the streets where we should have been. Now, there's nothing wrong with teaching the people of God inside the church building. Obviously, I'm not disdaining that. But our concept of evangelizing has been so poor and so anti-scriptural and, and so lacking in wisdom that we ended up where we are now, losing the battle uh, for the minds and hearts of an entire generation. Rather than trying to win the mind alone, Powers of darkness understood that if you capture the heart with the arts, the mind will just follow right in. 
So for generations now, the darkening halls of religion have easily been trumped by the more attractive platforms of the world's entertainment stories, songs, and images. Now, I don't mean by that that we need to run out there and try to learn what the world is doing and copy them. There's too much of that going on already, and it's not producing a whole lot of fruit. But what happens when someone comes along who can capture the heart, then inform the mind, and speak not of mere momentary pleasure and entertainment, but of things that matter most to all humans, but doing it in a winsome, entertaining, heart-capturing form. Then what if that message included how those things that matter most to us can be saved and preserved and enjoyed, not merely for a lifetime, but forever? I would bet that the messenger who could do that would win the day, especially if a time should come when all other stages go dim and his is the only show left in town and the test of his message and its validity was about to be imposed on its hearers at any moment. Well, such a thing happened once during World War II Britain. It could happen again in our day. Once in times past, sermons offered from church pulpits did the job, but no longer is that true, except in a few isolated exceptions. There's an entire world out there not in church, and not going to be in church, and yet they're all facing the same impending issues of eternal consequence which we inside the church claim to have answers for. What if the books and the songs and the TV shows and the movies and all the rest of it finally prove for them to be bankrupt, devoid of anything that offers real life in the face of real death, and they have tuned out all the arguments of the culture war, and they've just, they just, they've given up listening to sermons, and they've given up even listening to the world's sermons. They just want to feel alive a few minutes longer. So they look out in the dark to see if there's any flicker that might catch their interest to sustain them for a few more minutes before utter darkness takes them. And they catch Lewis on the radio. Who will be Lewis this time? What form will the radio program take this time? There are millions of possible answers to that question. When Jesus wanted to get his audience's attention and speak to their hearts, he didn't have them turn in their Bibles to a certain text. With all due respect to the much-needed fact of Bible study for believers, I'm talking about reaching people who are not into Bible study, obviously. Instead, he told them stories. Yes, those stories are now part of our Bible, but it is not then safe to say, maybe, that the same spirit of the living word which lives in each of us wants to keep telling the story in a million different creative forms. Yes, we need good apologetics, and not all spiritual battles are won by the poetic foot soldiers that sneak past the guards on the intellectual watchtower that I talked about a while ago. Sometimes the battle has to be engaged on the tower, and Lewis did that on a grand scale in books like Mere Christianity and Miracles and the Abolition of Man. But I believe his greatest appeal to this generation whose hearts are so jaded and bored and lost his greatest power to capture are in the stories that capture the heart. And what if this was a preview? Just as World War II could be a preview of the end of the age, that God raising up Lewis the way he did 
and putting him in the platform that he did is a preview of how God intends to raise up many other voices. And what if, after the effects of truth, reach the heart of this generation, a generation that has been in many ways so over, in, overindulged in some ways and undernourished in others, becomes a generation so envisioned by the kingdom of God that they are no longer afraid of death and therefore embrace life in all of its power. Jesus told us to pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send in laborers to the harvest. It's time to pray for this kind of laborer to enter this harvest. I pray for that. I pray that you will pray for that too. My dear, my very dear Wormwood, my poppet, my pig's knee, how mistakenly now that all is lost you come whimpering to ask me whether the terms of affection in which I addressed you meant nothing from the beginning. Far from it. Rest assured, my love for you and yours for me are as like two peas. I have always desired you, as you, pitiful fool, have desired me. The difference is that I am the stronger. I think they will give you to me now, or a bit of you. Love you? Why, yes, as dainty a morsel as ever I grew fat on. You have let a soul slip through your fingers. The howl of sharpened famine, for that loss re-echoes at this moment through all the levels of the kingdom of noise down to the very throne itself. It makes me mad to think of it. How well I know what happened at that instant when they snatched him from you. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not? as he saw you for the first time and recognized that part you had had in him and knew that you had it no longer. Just think and let it be the beginning of your agony, what he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen off of an old saw, as if he were emerging from a hideous shell-like tatter, as if he shuffled off for good and all a defiled, wet, clinging garment. By hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days, taking off dirtied and uncomfortable clothes, and splashing in hot water and giving little grunts of pleasure, stretching their eased limbs. What, then, of this final stripping, this complete cleansing? The more one thinks of it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily. No gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating theatre, no false hopes of life, sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment it seemed to be all our world. The scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosives on the lips and in the lungs, the feet burning with weariness, the heart cold with horrors, the brain reeling, the legs aching. Next moment all this was gone, gone like a bad dream, never again to be of any account. Defeated, outmaneuvered fool. Did you mark how naturally, as if he were born for it, the earth-born vermin entered into the new life? How all his doubts became, in the twinkling of an eye, ridiculous. I know what the creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course, it always was like that. All horrors have followed the same course getting worse and worse, and forcing you into a kind of bottleneck till, at the very moment when you thought you must be crushed, behold, you were out of the narrows, and all was suddenly well. The extraction hurt worse and worse, and then the tooth was out. The dream became a nightmare, and then you woke. 
you die and die and then you are beyond death. How could I ever have doubted it? And as he saw you, he saw them. I know how it was. You reeled back dizzy and blinded, more hurt by them than he'd ever been by bombs. The degradation of it, that this thing of earth and slime could stand upright and converse with spirits before whom you, a spirit, can only cower. Perhaps you had hoped that the awe and strangeness of it would dash his joy, but that's the cursed thing. The gods are strange to mortal eyes, and yet they are not strange. He had no faintest conception till that very hour of how they would look, and even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew that he had always known them, and realized what part each one of them had played at many an hour in his life when he had supposed himself alone, so that now he could say to them, one by one, not, who are you, but, so, it was you, all the time. All that they were and said at this moment woke memories. The dim consciousness of friends about him which had haunted his solitudes from infancy was now at last explained. That central music in every pure experience which has always just evaded memory was now at last recovered. Recognition made him free of their company almost before the limbs of his corpse became quiet. Only you were left outside. But he saw not only them, he saw him, this animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him, is clarity itself, and wears the form of a man. You would like, if you could, to interpret the patient's prostration in the presence, his self-abhorrence and utter knowledge of his sins. Yes, Wormwood, a clearer knowledge even than yours. On the analogy of your own choking and paralyzing sensations when you encounter the deadly air that breathes from the heart of heaven, but it's all nonsense. Pains he may still have to encounter, but they embrace those pains. They would not barter them for any earthly pleasure. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could once have tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved, whom he has loved all of his life and whom he had believed to be dead, is alive and even now is at his door. He is caught up into that world where pain and pleasure take on transfinite values, and all our arithmetic is dismayed. Once more, the inexplicable meets us. Next to the curse of useless tempters like yourself, the greatest curse upon us is the failure of our intelligence department. If only we could find out what he's really up to. Alas, alas, the knowledge in itself, so hateful and mawkish a thing, should be necessary for power. Sometimes I am almost in despair. All that sustains me is the conviction that our realism, our rejection in the face of all temptations, of all silly nonsense and claptrap, 
must win in the end. Meanwhile, I have you to settle with. Most truly do I sign myself, your increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle, Screwtape. We were made for God, only by being in some respect like God, only by being a manifestation of His beauty, loving kindness, wisdom or goodness, has any earthly loved one excited our love. It is not that we have loved them too much, but that we did not quite understand what we were loving. It is not that we shall be asked to turn away from them, so dear and familiar, and turn towards a stranger. No, when we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. He has been a party to, and has made, and sustained, and moved moment by moment within all our earthly experiences of innocent love. All that was true love in them was, even on earth, far more His than ours, and ours only because His. In heaven there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly loved ones. First, because we shall have turned already from the portrait to the original, from the rivulets to the fountain, from the creatures he has made lovable to love himself. But secondly, because we shall find them all in him. By loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we do now. Lucy cried, Peter, Edmund, come and look, come quickly. And they came and looked, for their eyes had become like hers. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's England, and that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's whole home in the country where all our adventures began. I thought that house had been destroyed, said Edmund. And so it was, said the fawn, but you're now looking at the England within England. The real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. Suddenly they shifted their eyes to another spot, and then Peter and Edmund and Lucy gasped with amazement and shouted out and began waving, for there they saw their own father and mother waving back at them across the great deep valley. It was like when you see people waving at you from the deck of a big ship, when you're waiting to meet them. How can we get at them, said Lucy. Well, that's easy, said Mr. Tumnus. That country and this country and all the real countries are only spurs jutting out from the great mountains of Aslan. We have only to walk along the ridge upward and inward till it joins them. Soon they found themselves all walking together. A great bright procession it was, up toward mountains higher than you could see in this world, even if they were there to be seen. But there was no snow on those mountains. There were forests and green and slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other, going up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time, with a deep valley on each side. And across that valley the land which was the real England grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. 
Then she forgot everything else, because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. You have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we could most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before.